Welcome to Will Watches Corey's Canon, a podcast where my friend Will watches movies from my personal canon and tells me if they were any good. My name's Corey. My name's Will. And welcome to the show. Um, so you just heard some really wonderful intro music made by my friend Michael Taylor. Um, he is a musician. Um, he plays in a really excellent Talking Heads cover band, but he's also in bands, other bands, um, and he composes music as well. Uh, check him out on Instagram at Mr. Kismet. Uh, you can contact him about making music for your personal project. And um, if you found us on iTunes or if you've been to our website, you'll also have seen our excellent hand-drawn logo that was drawn by my other friend, Leah Miller, who I used to play music with in a band. With whom you used to play music. Is that? Okay. Um, welcome to uh, Will's Grammar Hour. Call me Kelsey Grammar. Um, I will not, but I will call you <laughs> Fraser Crane. Um, so Leah drew that logo for us, and Leah can be found at Leah Mill Mill on Instagram, and she'll make some art for you as well. Um, so support your local art, you know, it's important. Um, and I hope you guys like the music and the logo and we're very excited to be here in episode three. We are out there. We're online. We're released. This is a real thing. It's very exciting. Um, we're surrounded by books. We are currently surrounded by books. I've also moved since recording the first two episodes I moved in with my fiance, uh, Hillary. And we currently, we decided we don't need bookshelves. We have all of our books in stacks around the, what I guess this would be the dining room. This is a serious question. Yes. Was that decision to not have bookshelves based in any way on Alfonso Cuaron's Roma and the metaphors he uses with the bookshelves as, as sort of the patriarchal container of knowledge? Um, they, they, in hindsight, just say yes, they were. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or that decision was, it's funny because Hillary already had her books this way. Um, and I always, she was already, she had already she removed had already, herself from that right. paradigm. I see. Um, and I then kind of joined in, uh, later. Um, I was, a I was, you know, being a man, I had yeah. bookshelves. Uh, so, you know, honestly, it's very freeing and it looks cool. And, uh, hopefully you guys can hear the books um <laughs> you can you can hear the ice cubes as well uh we <laughs> it's okay will and i are sharing a celebratory whiskey uh because we have released the show and we're very excited about it so um that's what we do when we're excited we drink alcohol so um so yeah just uh welcome to the show uh we thought before we got into the content of today's episode we'd give me just a little background on Will and I's relationship. I know that a lot of you are just dying to know Curious. how this beautiful, beautiful friendship was formed. Um, so, Will, I'm going to let you take this one and see if your story matches up with mine. It would be awesome if you just, like, covered your ears and <laughs> and then you had to tell it. Uh, right, yeah. Well, we met in graduate school, right? Yeah. Uh, we our, our paths probably crossed earlier, unbeknownst to us, I think because they must Corey have. used to work at a place called Digital Planet. Mm -hmm. I found out when I met him, and I used to frequent Digital Planet 
on the reg and Digital Planet, which is a used media uh, store. Uh, most I was there mostly for uh, DVDs in my high school years. I think uh, we've sort of figured out that Corey probably was the person in some capacity uh, responsible for ordering some of those movies mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as an employee of this fine establishment, which is out of business now. Um, but we met officially in graduate school. Corey was drunk and I took him home one night. Sparks flew, emotions ran high, <laughs> and he made a positive comment about uh, a CD I had. It was a Radiohead album. What was it? I think it was uh, Kid, a. Kid A. It was yeah, Kid A. It was Kid A. Um, and we just started talking about movies uh, later, later, after, you know, sometime after that, because it wasn't that night, because you were drunk and you just went home. I just wanted to go home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we grew up not far from one another, mm-hmm. and just sort of have a weirdly, um, to use a word I'll probably use later in our discussion of the film, sort of synchronous or synchronicitous. Mm-hmm. I don't know if either one of those are words. I'm certain synchronous is. Synchronous. Uh, sort of experiences with, uh, you know, sort of getting beyond kind of mainstream film in the South in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we found ourselves having conversations about movies and we thought, hey, what if we recorded those conversations and here right. we are and i will say it did take three years to get to that point though it did we had three years worth of conversations and we also ended up sharing the same friend group as well we all kind of um with gen c becoming a sort of a key figure in both right. of our lives um gen C's our research assistant right yes um both will and i have lived with Gen C in the same place at different times. And then um, our mutual friend, Matt, who uh, Will is on another show. Uh, He's your friend. I don't really like that guy. (laughs) Uh, Why don't you you plug your other show? I'll plug it. Anthropocenes. This is a a weekly podcast in which my friend Matt and I uh, discuss films uh specifically in relation or through a lens i guess we say of of the dying planet we look at films that are explicitly uh, environmental or implicitly and we sort of get creative and talk about them in in unique ways um so it's on all the all the big things spotify itunes soundcloud and all that anthropocenes do it um so one thing I remember that's funny about uh, that night when you gave me a ride home, you, I, I pulled up my, I got my phone out and I put my address into Google Maps for navigation. And uh, you were like, oh, how long have you lived in Murfreesboro? And I was like, oh, uh, 12 years. <laughs> and you were like, oh, <laughs> it was like, you just assumed, oh, you must not know where you're going. Um, but I just didn't. I didn't feel, I felt, I remember thinking like, this will just be easier for everybody if I just put this address here and not have to worry about telling you. Um, anyways, uh, so yeah, that's a little backstory on how Will and I met. We've known each other now for three years. 
And um, best three years of my life. It's been the best three years of my life. The best time though has been this last year when I really felt like you decided to be my friend, which was a really cool moment. Um, so I worked really hard those first two years to get your affection. You know what and, it was? Um, it was when for my birthday, Corey bought me the Richard Linklater uh, before trilogy on Criterion. I did do that. I was see, I'm, I'm uh, you know, in terms of like the love languages, the five love languages i'm a materialist mm-hmm. and i uh i need material purchases to feel love so once you got me that and those uh paul thomas anderson books i was like mm-hmm. this is a full-fledged bromance this guy has real feelings for me i got you blood simple on you did blu-ray criteria Criterion. i mean it, <clears throat> it's because I knew you'd like that movie, but also it was on super sale at deep on deepdiscount.com. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know Deep Discount? I've heard of it. Yeah. I Criterion for Day is on there. Hmm. For real. It's interesting. I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, it's something that's I can almost guarantee is going to come up every episode. Uh, Criterion, something that we talk about a lot. Also, um, Corey gave me his password to the Criterion channel that just came out, and. Here's a shameless plug for that. Go subscribe. It's amazing. It's incredible. How it's much important. does it cost? It's $10 a month. And oh it's, my God. It's worth it though. It's amazing. I'll give you $5 a month. You don't have to give me anything. I, I'm, I'm happy to share it with someone that you know actually enjoys it. But uh, they just did a thing on the Belcourt, which was I, lovely. Yep. I watched and, that. Uh, the Belcourt's in Nashville yeah. for all you dumb people. And I would there. love for, this is just, you know, Criterion, if you're listening, and I know you're not, sponsor us. We would love. Oh, we will... We will change the whole orientation of the podcast, and we'll just go to the. Will watches Corey's Criterion collection. Will watches uh, movies at the Belcourt, and then and then tries to get donations for the Belcourt on the podcast the entire time, because the Belcourt rules and Criterion rules, and I have a Criterion shirt. I have a Criterion shirt. A gift. And I love it deeply. Believe it or not, I just remembered. the. And this is actually an anecdote I was going to tell later. This is related to, here's what we'll do. Let's intro the film, and then I'll tell the anecdote. So the movie that we're covering today is Nicholas Rogue's... Nicholas Rogue! 1973 film, Don't Look Now. Psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. Christine. John, do you hear what I say? It was Christine. My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the grave. Yes. Christine is dead. Yes. She is dead. Yes. Dead, 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 dead. Okay, so this movie, uh, this is actually uh, the anecdote I was going to tell because it's tied tangentially to the director, Nicholas Rogue, um, because I was planning on asking you your relationship with this director uh, or your interactions with his work. Um, Previous to, or excuse me, prior to seeing Don't Look Now, I saw The Man Who Fell to Earth, mostly out of an interest in David Bowie um, because I kind of thought that 
on the surface, it looks like, hey, David Bowie made a movie and it's about him being an alien. So it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, it's kind of tied into the, what his music is about, blah, blah, blah. But it turned out it was this really, really incredible science fiction film directed by Nicholas Rogue. So when the Criterion Collection first started releasing Blu-rays, their first three Blu-rays were The Man Who Fell to Earth, The Third Man, and I don't remember the third one. <laughs> but I've seen that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not very good. So deepdiscount.com, I pre-ordered them and I got a free Criterion shirt with my three with my three Blu-rays. What's the, what's it look like? It just has a C. It's black, black with a silver C. C. That's yeah. the one, yeah. man. I think they still sell those on the website. Yeah. Um, but here, interestingly, so I watched uh, uh, Man Who Fell to Earth and Third Man, you know, both great films. I, I don't remember the third one, so I must not have liked it. Carol um, Reed's a man. It's a special moment in your movie education when you come to know that Carol Reed is a man. That is an important moment, yeah. So... We're Criterion nerds. We're Criterion nerds. So this movie, Get uh, used to it. Don't Look Now, also available on Criterion. Uh, Nicholas Rogue, he has Walkabout and uh, Insignificance are both also on Criterion. I think those are the only um, of his films on the Criterion. The collection. only other Rogue I've seen is The Man Who Fell to Earth. Okay. And I saw that in a class. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, badly. Wow, that makes sense. Learned yeah. to see Badly. Mm-hmm. Um. So this film, uh, I, I, you'll often, uh, listeners, you will hear, I will, I will soon be telling a much abbreviated version of this story. Um, but I often tell the story of the summer of my 16th birthday. My birthday is in June when I got my driver's license. I drove every, almost every day to Captain Video and Tanning in Smyrna, Tennessee, uh, they had 99 cent DVD rentals. You could bring the movie back the next day for 50 cents early return credit. Um, so I would go to Captain Video and Tanning and rent the maximum of 10 movies at a time. All Tanning Chatham movies. All Tanning Chatham. Um, and I would, I would just that that was the summer. Um, and you, you know, you hear Tarantino talk about this, Paul Thomas Anderson about. Um, video store film school or whatever. But mm -hmm. definitely I had a similar experience where I was just completely, utterly absorbed in film. I was watching everything that I could. I would watch all the bonus material on the DVDs and hear the directors talk about their influences and I would try to find those directors at Captain Video. And um, that is, I saw so many of the films that were important to me during that summer. So a lot of the movies that we're going to cover on the show are probably going to be the first time I saw them will be that summer because that was a huge, huge summer for me. So during that summer, I saw, I, I don't remember, I wish I remembered, but I rented a DVD that had a bonus feature on it that was like an AMC program about the top 50 movie endings. And Don't Look Now was on the list and I'd never heard of it. And they they did not spoil the ending on the thing, but they said that it had one of the most shocking endings in movie history. And I thought, oh, wow, I've got to see this movie. They didn't have it at Captain Video. I had to order it at Hastings. And so I ordered it. I had bought it without seeing it. And that was the first time I saw this movie. It was the, I believe it was the following. It was probably at this point I was 17. Did you, when you ordered it, was it the Criterion? No, no. The Criterion actually is... Pretty new. Pretty new. Um, I think it was only a couple of years ago that it gotcha. came out on Criterion. It was a, I remember it was a Warner Brothers 
had the red strip at the top with Warner Brothers, and then the the original poster art is a gold framed picture of I saw that yeah, yeah of Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, and there's like blood uh, leaking out of the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watched it, and um, I remember thinking. I remember being aware of movies at the time that I, I was like, I'm going to like this more when I get older. Um, like there, there were things about it that I was like, Oh, I enjoy this, but I could tell that there was something like there was something bigger about it that I didn't yet appreciate. Um, but I definitely loved the ending. Um, and it became a movie that I sort of always had and would watch every couple of years. Like it wasn't something that I watched constantly, but then it started to pop up in other documentaries about film in in books that I would read. So I think over the last 10 years, it's had a sort of resurgence in the critical conversation. Um, and due to that, I started to watch it a bit more and read more about it and really grew to love, love, love this movie. And the reason that I picked it for the show was I, I thought that... This is a movie from a genre that I love that I might actually get Will to really like. And so you're going to find different motivations coming from my side of the table on this show. Sometimes I'm going to try to prod, you know, Will because I'm going to make him watch something I know he's going to hate or something that I don't know how he's going to feel. Like Blade Runner, I was like, he'll probably like that. They live, he had expressed interest in. This movie was really kind of like a, hey, there are really like, you know, thoughtful and artful horror slash suspense movies out there. Not that you don't know that, but um, anyway, so those, that was my, that's kind of my orientation to the movie. Um, and that was my reasoning for, for picking the movie. And, um, and that's why I wanted Will to watch it. And um, so now Will is going to talk about, talk about that experience. Tell me what you thought, how you felt, what happened to you when you watched it. So my, I didn't really, know much about this movie i knew um because i clicked on some link on the internet yeah you know at some point that there was a an infamous sex scene with donald sutherland and julie christie Mm -hmm. so i'd seen that part several times uh on pornhub (laughs) and the uh but other than that i didn't know much about this movie at all Uh uh-huh and my, like I said, my only rogue experience was the man who fell to earth, which I thought was really weird and like weird to the point of like, I, I couldn't really understand what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, 12 years ago. Haven't watched it since. A lot of good David Bowie genitalia in that movie. Oh yeah. Uh, also, let me, t- let me tell you. Yeah. Um, so I was going in kind of blind that's not a pun on don't look now. And I watched, I, I always think the sort of setting of where you watch something really impacts your experience of it. Absolutely. Um, not that that's an original observation. Um, and I watched this alone on a computer, but on a, like a nice big computer. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. you know, at the airport on my Mac or something. Um, and it scared the shit out of me. I was like having a panic attack at the end Mm -hmm. and maybe that, you know, could have been because there was a serial killer in the house while I was watching (laughs) it, but you know, causation and correlation and all that stuff. No, um, no, it was, it really scared me Mm -hmm. and 
I was very anxious at the end. I remember I was, I was in the office of the house and I opened the door, like in that last scene where the Donald Sutherland's like running through the labyrinth of the, Mm -hmm. of the, you know, city. I was feeling very anxious. I like opened the door to the office because it, it it felt more comfortable with the door open. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and of course the final reveal was like fucking terrifying. Yeah. Um, I will say, I think this is a, a movie you should watch once mm-hmm. and that's it. And we'll get into that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I watched it a second time because I liked it. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. I thought it was, uh, very smart and I kind of, uh, subsequent to my second viewing, I read a the Roger Ebert review of it that I think he wrote in like 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, so several years ago, but you know, 30 years after the film was released, 29 years after it was released. And he talks about it as a sort of critique of rationalism in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And I'm on board with that. Uh, but then I read the Pauline Kael uh, review in the New Yorker and she makes some very good arguments, uh, and one of those arguments is that this movie is quote unquote trash. Um, and obviously there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but what's, what's interesting is that in 1973, when she wrote that review, things were different and the, the culture from which, uh, you know, that cultural perspective from which she's writing this review, I, I, I get Mm-hmm. It, there's this sort of trendy, uh, you know, it's like a fad in the early seventies of like the occult and parapsychology starts getting big. People start kind of bastardizing Carl Jung's, uh, you know, weirder writings and new agey stuff starts to, to be on the rise. You see Stephen King in the seventies emerge and, and use parapsychology and like everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, Kale calls the the movie worldly, which I thought was an interesting uh, critique. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's sort of what you hear in at church camp. You know, yeah, the worldly pleasures or whatever. Uh, but I, if you can sort of put yourself in that sort of 1973 mindset, where you're just sort of repulsed by this trendiness of parapsychology. I think Kale's review is kind of spot on. Mm-hmm. It's like this is a worldly movie about, uh, you know, where you got two really hip, you know, Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie stars in this plot that punishes the the agnostic man mm-hmm. for not believing in the supernatural. Um, but if you can sort of divorce yourself from that context, which we can now, because mm-hmm. you, you kind of got to immerse yourself in that culture to even, yeah, to read it that way, to even read it that way, which Kale didn't have to do because she was, that was, that was her, her culture. Reality, yeah. Right. Uh, but reading it, uh, strength, you won't hear me say this often, but Roger Ebert's review, I thought was for me today, more, uh, more fitting mm-hmm. because if you can sort of escape that, specific cultural context from which kale writes uh it it does function as just a kind of general critique of rationalism um and yet it uses these sort of by now kind of cliche tropes of second sight you know the blind Mm -hmm. woman is 
you know, has better sight in, in some way, more, more, uh, depth of sight mm -hmm. than people who can see. Um, but yeah, if you can sort of escape that specific cultural context and read it the way uh, Ebert does as a critique of rationalism, that's the way I sort of saw it the first time I watched it. Um, and, and, and honestly, before I read Pauline Kael's review, um, it's a frustrating review because you're like, damn it, she's, she's kind of right. Yeah. Um, but she's not really right in 2019, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. <clears throat> so she's totally right. It's a great review, but it doesn't make as much sense in 2019. Um, so that, that's my sort of general uh, sort of critical response. Like I said, uh, it was uh, unsettling a lot of the the way it was filmed, and, and Kale talks all about this and and praises it for its sort of modernist style. What she says is it it has a modernist style, but it does not have a modernist sensibility. Mm -hmm. It's sort of traditional sensibility in modernist style. Like he's just updating this sort of gothic story. Um, but I, I do like I like I really like the way the movie plays with time mm -hmm. and the whole sort of story takes place in that first little vignette right. where the little girl dies in the in the water but but then you you can see the future in the present you know you see julie christie's character going to the funeral mm -hmm. of her husband and her husband sees her right but you don't really know this until the end um, and so i really like when movies play with time in an interesting way because film is a medium that is sort of uniquely qualified to to fuck with our sense of time and it rarely does so it usually just tries to kind of affirm you know in, in a formalist sense uh, it just tries to affirm our sense of time our linear sense of time um, you know a realist film for some reason the thing that's popping into my head is Shawshank Redemption mm -hmm. which covers you know however many what 20 something years right and you never, it never feels disjointed or anything. It, it mm -hmm. feels right. Like, yeah, I've been with this character for 20 years. Uh, but that's a very straightforward, realist, formalist film. And this movie's, you know, very different than that. You heard it here first. Don't Look Now and Shawshank Redemption are very different films. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to put that as the quote uh, on the episode. That'll really reel people in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, play with the time. So there's some like weird, I I'm going to find this quote. The discrepancy involved in a tightly planned interlocking mystery made me impatient. The preordained can be experienced as the mechanically delayed. End quote. So you get this sense that rogue is kind of fucking with you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a, a super realist film. There's someone messing with time behind the, behind the camera here. And yet you feel that as a mechanical delay, a sort of, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not a good sense of someone fucking with you. It's like an artificial sense of someone fucking with you uh, is what, is what she's saying. And again, that, that sort of preordained. She she's making the case that it's sort of a traditional film in a, in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. despite its um, pretense, its style as sort of cutting edge, kind of modernist. Uh, I'm not sure when the term postmodernist sort of came into play. Yeah, it was, that's funny. I'm if she, I think she maybe 
now we might say what she's really meaning is postmodern sensibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, a lot of, a lot of cool stuff going on with the editing. Mm -hmm. Uh, the city uh, of Venice is very ugly, Mm -hmm. uh, and very intentionally very dead and eerie and, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. And it's just claustrophobic and, yeah. and, and labyrinthian. Yeah. Just. And it's, it, you know, it's very cool uh, when you just sort of have, have the realization like, oh, his daughter just died in this lake or creek or whatever it is she does. Mm-hmm. And then he moves to Venice. Right. You know, the city on the water. With what? Well, yeah. I mean, water is huge in this right. movie. But. Right. And so then you see, and at one point you see the little baby doll like mm-hmm. floating in the water. And so there's uh, a word I promised to use earlier, uh, synchronicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you definitely see that. You see these events, events kind of syncing up. And right. like I said, everything's sort of contained in that first scene. Yeah, and it's just kind of an everything's just kind of an iteration, yeah, it, an unfolding of that. And yes, it's um, you know, there's the body pulled out of the water. Right. There is the the mention. You know, it it's one of those movies that for me, when I the only the only kind of pushback I have against your um, only watching it once, which we haven't gotten to why exactly you think that, but my and I think this this happens to me a lot with movies that are sort of defined by their endings a lot of it can lose a lot of its uh you know spark the next time you watch it because you know what's coming mm-hmm. but i think this movie for me always seemed like when you watch it again you start to see that this ending while surprising the first time it was always there like everything about the ending has been in some way kind of inserted into the film you know like we know there's a killer in venice that's that gets established. Um, of course, we're not like why would we assume that Donald Sutherland is going to get killed by this killer? But um, the the sort of right because he's an actor and he's not even in the film, <laughs> you know. That's true. Um, but I think it, for me, it was always something that like I was rewarded more on multiple viewings to see that sort of these things had been kind of set up in different ways. Certainly not explicitly, but I think a lot of the I, I like I like your sort of reading that everything about the film is in this opening vignette, and it really is. I mean, even the the sort of precognition of something is amiss, something's about to happen. Like mm. he because he goes out there to check on his daughter without any, you know, there's no he hear they don't hear anything, right? And it's, he just it's, sort of knows or, or senses that something is wrong, and then it ends in disaster. So, and I like that. I like the decision to have his character be the one that has the sort of the gift as the right. character says, even if he's resisting it. Uh, Cause it's more compelling. It would, you know, it wouldn't have been as compelling if Julie Christie's character, who's so sort of philosophically open to this possibility. Yeah, she would have accepted it. I think, yeah. And, and it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been believable to him. So, but the question I have is like, is it conscious to him? Does he, does he know he has this gift because he never acknowledges it. And it's almost like he's repressing it. He's right. sort of, so I think that want to acknowledge there, it. there is, there are two ways to read that in the film. And that has to do with like, do we read what the director is showing us as something that his character can see? Or is that just for us? Because 
you know, he, it looks to me though, in his final moments at the end of the film that he's realizing he's seen all of this before mm-hmm. and that he, he has, that he in some way knew this was coming. Right. And I think that that's sort of the, the expression on his face is one of realization. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is why I was, these are, you know, he's literally seeing things in the scene that he saw earlier in the film and realizing, oh, that's why, that's why I was compelled right. to this, you know, this specific location. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of that is the, his rejection of that is obviously very symbolic of uh, a rejection of anything paranormal, anything occult. Right. Um, and then we are, you know, led to believe or we're shown that such a, such a resistance to those forces can only end in tragedy, um, according to the film, it seems. Right. Um, and, that, and that's a, a big problem for Kale. You know, that's, right. that's sort of her critique is that like, this is an old, tro- this is nothing new. This is an old trope mm-hmm. where you are punished for not believing in these things. It's just that it's been updated into this kind of hip, new, yeah. new agey thing as opposed to traditional religious supernatural belief well sure yeah i mean and i think that there it's very much a um and now i'm kind of loath to say an updated version of a gothic story because it is kind of in in most ways very traditional i mean you have the venice the lower parts of venice are kind of taking the place of the the dungeon or like the basement of the gothic mansions that you often see in those stories Mm -hmm. um and even the you know and in those stories or or uh films either one you know the characters that are pushing against the you know usually the female character that sees the ghost or whatever she accepts that it's real and then goes on a journey of discovery um the people around her that don't accept this is happening are the ones that die and you know so it's it's sort of a in this case we're getting donald sutherland's character being the resistant force and his wife being the the one that accepts it but in this case he goes on the journey into the darkness into the dungeons um which in most gothic stories ends in discovery and uh and certainly in a lot of these other ones is sort of a an affirmation um or an, you know an independence that's born from these adventures but for him um he remains resistant and is then murdered. But if you, if I think this is a very psychological movie and I think it has to be read on a very symbolic metaphorical level to Mm. where, I mean, it's, it's essentially a movie about grief. Oh yeah. You know, and, and, in in a lot of weird ways, it reminds me of Lars von Trier's, uh, Antichrist and Mm -hmm. it's centered on this couple dealing with the loss of a child. And there's a weird emphasis on sex through the, through the sex scene. Mm. Uh, in both the movies <laughs> in different ways. Uh, but uh, on a sort of psychological interpretation of the movie, you see these, this labyrinth like city in the dark as kind of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it takes the place of the basement and the basement is always the unconscious and, right. you know, in stories like this. And he sort of has this object, you know, this, this thing that looks like his little girl, but it, as he represses and refuses to, to engage with these, you know, with this, uh, 
uh, narrative provided by these these two ladies, you know, the one to second sight, or the, this in the psychological reading, this narrative of supernatural mm-hmm. uh, possibility. Uh, Julie, you know, Julie Christie's character sees or, or believes that these ladies see the little girl, and she looks beautiful. She looks happy, mm-hmm. and and you see that at the end. What has this little girl turned into? Right. It's just this sort of monster kind of grotesque figure. And so I think what Rogue is doing is suggesting that with grief, if you repress that um, narrative, that notion of the afterlife mm-hmm. or you may, maybe some sort of supernatural something, um, this the object of your grief will fester Mm-hmm. into this grotesque version of itself and it will eat at you and it will kill you in, right. in a in a spiritual way. Um uh, and so yeah, I mean on the surface level this movie is about yeah, Donald Sutherland's character dies at the end. Mm-hmm. But it's a psychological movie. It's yeah. steeped in psychology Absolutely. and it's l- literally about you know, a psychological problem, grief. Mm-hmm. Um well, and I think it's interesting, interesting too, to kind of uh, to build off your point that he is very explicit in in showing, at least in the film, especially to his wife, that he has accepted that their daughter is dead. Like he's the dead, one, dead, dead, right? Dead, he's dead. the one that is is so. He reiterates the point. He tells her she is dead. She's dead, and that's you know that's it. And it's 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 not about it's not necessarily about acceptance. It's about, like you said, sort of a rejection of, of a spiritual aspect. It's, it's ideological. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you see where this sort of rationalist ideology leads you, mm-hmm. which is to despair and, and this, the object of your grief festering and killing you. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I think it's important to read this movie symbolically. And I, I, what clued me into that sort of reading is one time when they're, I guess it's the first time they're sort of wandering through the dark city at night. When they come out of the city, it's a sort of clean, well-lighted place. Yeah, and um, there's suddenly and people everywhere. Suddenly people, kind of just a, all of a sudden there's yeah. light and people and, crucially, uh, alcohol. There's like bottles of liquor in the mm-hmm. window. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, so this is the kind of the ego. This is the, this is consciousness. Right. This is and distraction and kind of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see as these inklings of this, of this thing, this, this object of his grief, cause he can't quite make out, uh, right. you know, this thing sort of reminds him of that, but he won't really confront it. Mm-hmm. And by the time he actually does, it's too late. It's just morphed into this right. monster. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, obviously the, the Gothic, nature of the story is uh can be attributed to this is an adaptation of a Daphne du Maurier story uh famously author of Rebecca uh a great gothic novel and great gothic um uh gothic horror or Hitchcock yeah a Hitchcock film uh also available on Criterion so and and it's a fairly uh from what I've read I've not read the De Maurier's story, but I have read a fairly detailed synopsis of it. And the film is pretty much, it's straight up one for one almost. So the Donald Sutherland's in the original <laughs> De Maurier story. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I mean, the story is an incredibly, it, it's a pretty uh, uh, 
straightforward adaptation. So I think that a lot of the um, the gothic nature of the story might be coming from the source material, and then I think that um, Rogue sort of brings his own um, you know intentionality to to the film. Here's uh, here's some more Pauline Kale on on sort of that kind of stuff you're talking about. Uh, all that the movie really says to one is that Nicholas Rogue has a modern sensibility without having a modern mind. Or to put it another way, he has the style without the consciousness. He uses this shattered vision to bring a gothic story up to date. Put them together and you have the new international celebrity look. The boy or girl looking like Bianca Jagger and talking about psychic phenomena. She has a lot of nice things to say about Rogue's sort of technical abilities as a mm-hmm. director at the beginning and his sort of editing style and the cinematography of, right. of Venice, which Rogue is a, is a cinematographer himself and, mm-hmm. and is uncredited, she says, in this movie as a cinematographer. Um, so I don't, I don't want it to... I don't want to misrepresent her review, mm-hmm. which is... I mean, ultimately, a sort of negative review, sort of ideologically, this movie is kind of childish, yeah. she says. But she has nice things to say about his abilities as a sort of technical director. Yeah, technically speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, which, which is very evident, I think, in, in a viewing of the movie is that this is cool. This is like a, a talented director oh, yeah, yeah. doing something I mean, interesting. And I think that's kind of what I, I think that maybe is kind of what I was referring to. Um, young you know 16 year old me or 17 year old me seeing this was certainly picking up on the um the aesthetic things that i could appreciate and value and that and sort of knowing that maybe there was some symbolism here that i wasn't fully getting yet but there was enough in the movie stylistically and narratively to to keep me to keep it on my shelf and to keep it something to kind of come back to and then as i said i think it's grown in my personal esteem um, exponentially over the last few years. Um, it's always good to know that you don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I remember I was reading, when I was like 20, I started reading this book called The Phenomenon of Man by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, mm-hmm. this like paleontologist, theologian, you know? And I was like, yeah, I think I need to read for like 10 years before I know what this book is <laughs> yeah, saying. So yeah. it was like, at least I didn't like try to read it and then pawn it off like I, under, pawn off like I understood it. But or I, just take that feeling and somehow, you know, spin it into a negative thing. Right. Because I think that that's something that that's I think that's the natural human response. Yeah, it you was know, overwrought. Yeah, you, <laughs> exactly. You, you want to push back against something that you don't understand. It was very opaque. Yeah. Um, this means you didn't get it but also the other side of that is is it do you only think it's good because you don't get it right like oh i assume there's something to get so this must be cool and then you get older and like no this is just posturing So if you guys are looking for a way to support the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash canon, And there you can choose three different levels of support. You can pay $1 per episode, and that gets you the Friends of the Podcast ranking, which will get you mentioned in the written credits of the episode. And then there's the BFF 
level, which is $5 per episode, and you will have your name immortalized in the written credits of the episode and a shout out at the end of the show. So, so consider that. Then there is the third level, which is the friends with benefits level. This gets you the name mentioned in the written credits, the name mentioned in the show, on the show, at the end of the show, but also you will get exclusive access to bonus episodes, extended episodes, outtakes, and other super fun recorded material from your favorite podcast hosts, Will and Corey. So patreon.com slash Will Watches Corey's Canon. Anything is appreciated. Patreon.com slash Will Watches Corey's Canon. The church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Donald Sutherland's character's relationship with the church. I right. can't tell if it's like Rogue sort of saying, you know, he's always in these precarious positions on the church. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you kind of, there's danger in the church. This is like not a safe thing to rely on. Right. It, you know, is that what's happening with the with the precariousness in church? Or what's the other thing I said? Uh, or is it the character's kind of purely material, materialist relationship to mm-hmm. the church? He's just like literally physically restoring the veneer See, of the church. Yeah. And, he, and he's not open or susceptible to the substance Mm -hmm. you know of a sort of supernatural worldview the way his wife is and and he even says like oh once she accepts this kind of supernatural narrative she becomes her whole self Mm -hmm. and so he doesn't do that and he's this sort of fractured right being and yeah i sort of see it as the the latter with with this sort of being a smaller version of kind of the the, the entire plot of the film where for his character this is a this is a job he is he is there to restore this building and he is ignoring any and all supernatural or spiritual um, aspects of the building and because of that because of his willful ignorance or willful um, you know uh, suppression suppression, suppression he is put in physical danger um you know literally nearly losing his life on the scaffold later in the film and i think that that's sort of a the same way that his repression of the supernatural ultimately leads to his death or you know uh symbolically his repression of of uh the spiritual realm or you know uh, as it related to his grief his repression or resistance to the spiritual nature of this building puts him in peril I think. Mm-hmm. And he comes face to face with that gargoyle, right. which is a nice sort of uh, foreshadowing. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, anyway, I just wasn't sure that it's almost like a sort of, uh, you, you, you might have to know more about rogue himself, which is yeah. kind of a, I know we've sort of talked about auteur theory, mm-hmm. some and sort of, how much biography should play in your interpretation because it's you know weirdly kind of dependent on how big of a film nerd you are and it's it's frustrating to think that what a movie means essentially is dependent upon your sort of trivia knowledge of Mm -hmm. of a director's you know personal beliefs um 
but it seems like to really know what he's trying to say about the church, you might have to sort of know the, the same way I was going to say, you you kind of have to know Pauline Kael's kind of worldview. Right. Cause she's obviously having a pretty strong negative reaction to, to this, her perceived, uh, you know, uh, focus of the film or aesthetic, uh, or aesthetic. Right. Uh, but, but, but at the time, it, you know, you have to say what I, I have a strong suspicion that I would have been on Kale's side a hundred percent in 1973 mm-hmm. to, to see this movie fitting into some sort of spiritual fad or pseudo spiritual fad. Right. Uh, so I, you know, who knows, um, uh, but it, regardless, it is sort of ideological, mm-hmm. um, and and ideologies change, and that's why I right. say, like in 2019, it doesn't. It's hard to see this film in that. In it's hard to see it in the context in which it came out, and that's another question for film interpretation, like how how relegated to the past or or to the specific context in which it comes out is it, mm-hmm. um, and then you get into the question of sort of viewer response as end all be all or yeah like how or authorial intention as mm-hmm. end all be all and it's just like you know i don't know i don't know what we don't have to pick one of those right um, so what we thought would be fun for uh the listeners is if we had a sort of set ranking system for Will to choose from to rank these movies from my personal canon. So we came up with a few things that Will can choose from that you guys can uh, remember, and then you can kind of look forward to this part. And maybe, you know, you're like sitting there with your friends. I know that this is listening to podcasts is definitely a group activity. So you're sitting amongst your group of 10 or 20 friends and around the radio. Yeah. And you're thinking like, Ooh, what's it going to be? I think it's going to be this. What do you think, Steve? Sipping hot cocoa. And then Steve is like always such a fucking idiot. And he's like, thinks it's this other thing and you're so mad about it, but fucking Steve. Mm -hmm. But, um, so we, we came up with, with, uh, with five ratings. Um, and we're going to explain them to you. And then will is going to then choose one of those four. Don't look now. Um, so our first, ranking that will can choose is a thinker and will do you want to tell him what it means to be a thinker yeah a thinker is a movie that i don't necessarily kind of connect with in a visceral emotional way but invites uh, further speculation i'm sort of intrigued by intellectually and uh, it, it will continue to kind of be in my thoughts that's a thinker that's a thinker okay Ranking number two is A Stinker. A Stinker is a movie that is not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a movie that I don't see any kind of, not even not even like campy value, not even entertainment value, certainly not intellectual value, no artistic value. It's a movie that is not, I don't even want to say worth your time because I don't want this to be like a consumer oriented thing where it's like don't spend your money on they live Uh, i'm not sure why i spoke in the voice of an old prospector but um. (laughs) well that's what your internal monologue sounds like all right so uh ranking number three is a brinker brinker the namesake of which is brink brinkerton from the decom 
brink exclamation point i believe i believe so um because Corey and i both and you know any sort of movie fan uh, of a certain age knows this is brink is the height of cinema and so a brinker is a movie that is you know comparable to brink not quite as good as brink but sort of in the same ballpark so a brinker is a great film mm-hmm. yeah okay. and and th- that greatness would be suggested by its artistic merit its intellectual merit uh obviously artistic merit sort of a blanket term to encapsulate a lot of things and and all of this is completely subjective and determined by me well sure that's the whole uh right thing that's i'm the, the canon watcher the yeah the next one is something that is located squarely in Corey's womb room. So the the womb room is a reference to the fact that this is a movie that Corey only enjoys, in my opinion, because of its nostalgic quality. So in a sense, Corey's trying to climb back into the womb with this one and, and the pleasure of the film is actually just a sort of comforting, regressive, womb-like comfort mm-hmm. um, and actually has nothing to do with the real world. To quote Norman O'Brown, uh, the shellfishness of selfishness is the refusal to be born. And and, and so in a, in a womb room, it, it's you sort of refusing to sort of come into the light, to, to walk out of Plato's cave and see the reality you're just you're just mesmerized by those fucking shadows dancing on the cave wall and it's it's uh you know it's just wandering in the mother as norman o'brown would say so we'll be inviting Corey into the light on those films (laughs) (laughs) all right and then our final rating um i think the exact wording on this one might change from episode to episode but uh as it stands now, uh, Will, I'll let you take this last one. The final rating of a mediocre, ambivalent one will be, while this film displayed some promise of artistic merit, it did not fully live up to that promise and could have been improved, and I might watch again only if there were alcohol involved and it was free and the time of day, like it sort of fit my schedule. And so that's the final ranking. And, you know, that one, it's a little short, so we might try to make it a little longer because I'm not sure if that really yes. gets the point across. But so that final ranking, uh, that's going to be for, you know, anything that Will is kind of uh, ambivalent about, has no strong feelings. Um, so so those are our rankings. Um, and we're going to... Do you want to retroactively rank the, the previous Yeah, ones? let's look at uh, what would you rank Blade Runner? Blade Runner is a thinker. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think that everybody would agree with that based on the episode that we recorded of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Episode two, They Live. They Live is a, while this film displayed some artistic merit, it did not fully live up to its promise. Dot, 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 dot. We should have written that down. Yeah. We'll write it down for the next one. You're going to have to memorize that. Uh, That'll be your job. Um, Okay, so we're ready for the big reveal. What is your ranking? Of Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now is a thinker. Okay. It is. Um, if there's some sort of rating between thinker and brinker, it's there because I, I really sort of viscerally enjoyed this movie more 
than Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do have some kind of, I'm mostly intellectually intrigued and I really want to like, I found myself sort of Googling the culture of kind of trendy parapsychology in the early Mm seventies before we recorded this, because I really kind of want to understand Kale's perspective because Pauline Kale is someone I, I generally trust, Mm -hmm. um, you know, her, her film reviews. And, uh, and so, so I think it's a thinker in that I want to continue thinking about this and probably will. And, and I am, uh, sort of, uh, invited this film, I think invites you to further explore Nicholas rogue because there's definitely promise in, in the technical, you know, the technical mm-hmm. of the film is a technical aspect of the film is very cool and innovative for 1973. And so it's a thinker, both stylistically and substantially. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Don't look now. Is a thinker. All right, folks. Well, um, that is the end of this episode. Uh, Obviously, we're still working on the ending. um, But um, check us out on Instagram. Will watches Corey's Canon. Will watches Corey's Canon.com is where you can find the episodes, but we're also on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, MySpace, everywhere. Uh, Friendster. Um, we're actually on Zillow, the real estate website. Uh, they just added <laughs> podcasts. So <laughs> um, we, we weren't able to afford the spot on Trulia, but we are on Zillow. We are on Zillow. Um, all right, folks. So we got another new episode coming out in two weeks and we will catch you later. Fortnite. The game. It's coming out in a fortnight. It's coming out on Fortnite. Actually, all of our podcasts are released through the Xbox, PlayStation, PC, and Fortnite.